Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next edition of Slaves to the Algo. I'm Suresh Shankar, founder and CEO of Crayon Data. And today I'm really pleased to have with me a true visionary in the age of algorithms. He was in the age of algorithms before we started talking about the age of algorithms. Uh, I'd like to welcome Jeff Jonas, founder and CEO of Sensing, but also a visionary and a person who literally has been involved in the idea of entity resolution for decades. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Uh, thanks. As if anybody's heard of entity resolution. <laughs> no, but you've been talking about entity resolution for literally decades, and you've been doing this, and um, you've been doing this whole thing of how do I actually use data in many ways. You've been a pioneer in this stuff, right? So perhaps I should, you know, Jeff, I think you're you're a person that's much more than that, so I should let you introduce yourself before we go, before we get straight into the details. Uh, what do you, okay, so you want a quick intro? I've spent most of my life building custom software. I've probably designed and built and deployed about a hundred different systems over a wide range of kinds of fields. And then, but over that course of time that I, I discovered that more and more, one of the biggest problems organizations have with data is the inability to connect it. Duplicates in data, uh, duplicates across systems. And if you can't figure out what data is related to what data, you can't make very good decisions. So over the course of my life, I've become more and more focused around this one little problem, which it goes by a lot of different names, but uh, again, healthcare is patient record matching. In marketing, it's marketing this dedu. If you're a bank, it's like saying from screening a record matching or fuzzy matching, but man, it's all entity resolution. It's everywhere. So anyway, I've become obsessed with that. I sold my last entity resolution company to IBM in 05. And then while at IBM, um, I started working on the next generation version that way more advanced, uh, probably spent 50 million building it and spun sending out. So sending is not a startup, you probably haven't heard of the name, but we're a reincarnation. It's a proven team, proven tech. <laughs> we just have a new birthday and a new name. <laughs> and, and I met you at IBM and it's very interesting because you actually bought back what you were doing at IBM because you wanted to reincarnate it, as you just said, right? And, mm -hmm. and what made you do something like that? I mean, most people are happy with the exit. You actually unexited back to yourself. IBM didn't even think I was going to stay at IBM. I stayed 11 years. No founder CEOs even stayed that long. Um, but I'm obsessed with my work. And um, and entity resolution is just so pivotal. But anyway, while at IBM, I'd invented this new breed of thing. And then I just, I decided I want to get back to my entrepreneurial roots. And uh, IBM gave me a really unique, one-of-a-kind spin-out. And, and that's really nice to know. And I think for the, uh, my audience may not know this, but Jeff was a distinguished scientist and a fellow at IBM as well. So uh, yeah. highly credentialed uh, in, a, in an academic and in an entrepreneurial sense. Academic uh, is an overstretch. Uh, it's an overstep because I didn't finish high school. <laughs> no, I didn't mean it. I don't mean academic in a titular sense. I mean academic oh, okay. in a really deep understanding of a subject. And I'm actually going to segue from something that you just said, right? You, you were doing a lot of things and then you kind of come narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower and you do this one thing. But that one thing for you is the root of everything, right? In a way, I mean, if I were to describe it. So that's a fascinating journey. So tell us how you kind of came down into this one little thing that is at the core of everything that we do in data. You know, the very first system that I built that uh, was matching identities, and it, it didn't need, it took years before I realized it was a trend and, and it was 
It was something inside of everything, almost everything. Um, but uh, it was worked for a collection agency that goes and collects bad debt. And they would send five notices to the same person. One was, you know, five different debts or call them five times. But you really want to just call them once and go, hey, you have five bills. And, you know, I built that in the 80s and didn't think anything of it. And then in the early 90s, the casinos wanted to combine data, their guests, their loyalty club, and they want to see how that related to like people that they shouldn't let into the casino. And that's a matching problem. That's an interesting matching problem because people that are clever, like kind of evil, clever bastards, so to speak, are, um, they don't use the same name and address on every record. Like they're always just, one person had 32 different names, five different dates of birth. So how do you, how do, you do that? So we solved that in the nineties. And then I did, I built another one and another one. I built five, my team and I built five of these engines before we realized it, we were building the same engine over and over for different purposes. And then we started to generalize it. And then over time, you just realize it's at the center of healthcare. It's at the center of banking, KYC and AML. It's at the center of marketing. I mean, if you can't combine data, you can't make high quality decisions with the algos. And, uh, you know, Jeff, this is a fascinating thing of how algos have gone from literally human beings looking at something to you automate one or two steps and then you say this is the, you know, ultimately over a series of steps, you come to an algo that is literally at the core of all kinds of decisions that you need to make, right? And you spent about three decades in this. If I were to ask you, not just an... Can you get out of here? I'm trying to make you young now. (laughs) Okay, go. Okay. Uh, But the question I have for you is this, right? I mean, in all these decades, I mean, it's not just entity resolution. You've been exposed to a wide variety of of what we know. Everybody talks about algorithms and AI. What do you think are some cool uh, examples of things that you've seen, you know, either as a consumer in your business life, not necessarily only an entity resolution, something to say, hey, wow, that is really cool. How did they actually create that stuff? Are you asking me which algos I find the most fascinating? Yes. Well, I'll tell you the algos that probably are the most impactful are the ones that are gamifying our experiences and keep pulling us in to check uh, LinkedIn over and over or check Facebook over and over. Those those algorithms that are so tailored uh, to uh, you and your data to present, figure out what to present to you next to draw to bring your eyeballs back. I, I think I think that's very interesting uh, set of algos. I also think that we, when we use search engines, which have really changed the whole world, what you see is more and more being tailored to you. It's not actually what's on the internet. Um, you're you're looking through a lens. And I think people forget that we're looking through a lens. If you search for a certain topic in the Middle East, you get a different kind of set of things. And if you search, uh, you know, in the, in the US or the, in the South, or it's me versus somebody else. And that I think is really interesting. And it kind of really talks to the idea of being a slave to the algo. I mean, you talked about the LinkedIn and the Facebook feeds and all that. Uh, in a sense, we being, quote unquote, the algo is manipulating what it shows you, right? But it doesn't have, the algo itself doesn't have any kind of intent apart from making you come back for more. Right. But then, you know, we're, we're 
I don't know if you heard like I haven't read much on it, but the uh, the microbe, the biome in your stomach has a lot more to do with your your what you wanted, how you behave than you think. And I think I think algos are shaping how we interact with the world in ways that people aren't being cognizant of. Like what you absolutely see really uh, a, a machine has picked a lens for how you are going to see the world. You search for 9-11 conspiracy in some parts of the world and it's all you read about. And you search in other parts of the world and, and you read about something different. And it, it also builds bias, which I think is a big uh, developing problem in the world is, 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 is uh, different points of views that are very uh, aggressive towards each other. And, and, and that is so true because what you're saying is the algo may not start with bias, but as it shows you the thing and then it kind of starts to learn and do more and more things around you, it is entrenching some biases. But there are also good things that algos have done, right? I mean, recently, I'm sure you read about the deep mind, the protein folding thing that they've went yeah. out and did yeah. out there. So anything that you've seen that, you know, says, wow, you know, that would have, that, that is really cool and, and, and good for stuff. Oh, the happy side of algos. <laughs> yes, the happy ones, not just the dog side. Yeah, I do a lot of work in privacy, so I, I'm often thinking about like ways to make algorithms more fair. Uh, so that's why I went there first. But you know, just as much as uh, I, you know, LinkedIn is a great example of something that I, I my revisit rate is quite high. The people that it brings forward and says, "Here's their birthdays, their anniversaries, their job changes." It's not all 8,000 of my people every day. I'd never be able to respond to them all. But it's certain people, and it's great. And it really it improves my you know, journey and builds deeper connections because I actually go and respond to those people. Every single day, if somebody has a birthday or a job change, I send them a personal note. And so that's, you know, that's enhancing my, uh, my, my relationships and connectedness to people. I'm going to wait for that birthday wish next year, Jeff, see whether I'm on that list of people who shows up on your feed. Yeah, but if LinkedIn doesn't put you on there, then, you know, the question is, uh, who am I missing? I kind of, I think it's doing a pretty good job, but it's a lens. Um, but, you know, you talked about privacy just now, Jeff, and I know you've been a big fan of this. And, you know, the two worlds that you live in, the ability to actually resolve identity or an entity is also kind of very deeply linked with privacy. So let's just take a step maybe a little bit deeper into this whole idea of entity resolution, right? And, you know, we, we briefly touched upon the fact that it's at the core of everything that you do. And, uh, you know, you have many people pretending, you know, you have the fraud, obviously, but you also have, but I don't know now, for example, when I go onto a site, whether the review is a real one, whether it's, whether the person I'm dealing with is a real person or not. How do you actually use, I mean, how, how important is identity resolution? And could you share a few examples of how you're working towards um, solving, I'm not going to say world peace, but solving some real problems around identity? You know, when, it, when, it's, a fake, when it's a fake person, it's a synthetic identity. And so one way that you find lies in data, if I were to tell you a lie right now, like if I told you I'm 51, you wouldn't know uh, whether that was maybe true or false, unless you had some other data to compare it to. So the way you find lies in data is you take a claim or an observation, and then you find other data to compare it to, and that's how you find disagreement, dissent, and lies. And so that holds true with entity resolution as well. Uh, but that's in the case of like a synthetic. 
One of the projects that's uh, entity resolution heavy is the work uh, our software is doing voter registration in the US. The US is a very mobile population um, on, well, post, I mean, pre pandemic, <laughs> heard of that, changed yeah. everything. <laughs> um, but people move every five years on average. And when people move, they forget to unregister. So they move from Colorado and then they go to California and then they register in California, but they forget to unregister in Colorado. You end up with more people on the voting roll than live there. Now, you can still be on the roll if you own property, but you just can't vote in a federal election. And so, but it brings it brings discredit to the election roll because you, someone will go look at it and there's people that don't live in the state. That's just because people forgot. This isn't any resolution problem. And so our, um, a nonprofit uses Denving's uh, entity resolution to take voters and Department of Motor Vehicle data, which just gives you a secondary data point, helps match better across um, two thirds of the country is doing this, uh, 30, over 30 states. And what it does, it allows the, um, the nonprofit to reach out to uh, Colorado and say, hey, this voter uh, apparently is moved to California. You might want to communicate with them and see if they still want to be registered. Nice. Yeah. And, and, and so, that's obviously a big topical issue right now, <laughs> obviously, yeah. you know, given where the U.S. election has been. But, um, I mean, here's a case of, I think, um, where you're trying to use the identity to resolve, you know, in a, in a sense, you know, in a for good nonprofit situation. Are there any other such examples where, you know, for example, you know, I mean, I know it's very, it's, it's very big in, in security. I know it's very big in um, KYC, et cetera. Um, and all of these are now becoming increasingly complex because people are very good at synthetic identities. Am I right? Did you say people are very good at synthetic identities? At creating these all these kinds of things. And yes, I mean, maybe there's a better, I mean, how does the algo actually go out? Because no matter what I do, if I create six IDs, there is some part of me that's in, you know, that's going to leave a trace, right? So how do the algo actually work in resolving that all of this is actually one person? That's me. Yeah. Um, you know, like, I don't know, how many email addresses do you have that are active? But I have to probably four, but I probably have some nine or 10, which are lying around and mm -hmm. never, never deleted them or don't use or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, I have four too. And uh, it's very common in, uh, in communications and transactions to use different channels. You will use your work credit card to purchase this personal credit card for that. You'll use your, you know, this email address for these communications and this for that. Then you'll jump over and be talking to somebody on, on LinkedIn. And so it's a multi-channel system. If something wants to, if, if, if you want to understand uh, your communications with even one of your friends, you might actually have to go personally aggregate that and look across these different channels to figure out what you've been talking to them about. I mean, you've been saying this on Signal, this on Facebook. And, and this is happening to businesses. Uh, and the data is scattered. And some people, interestingly, intentionally do channel separation because they're hiding stuff. No one, you know, we had the, the, the diesel fuel um, fertilizer and the truck, right? And they made a bomb. Like, I suspect nobody goes and buys a ton of fertilizer, a ton of diesel fuel, and rents a moving truck, <laughs> you know, on the same day with the same identity. I, they probably don't do that unless they're idiots. And by the way, you and I do channel separation. If I were to email you an encrypted document and then call you with the password or use a different channel, that's channel separation. And so one of the roles of entity resolution is to do channel consolidation. 
you have to know is it three different people with three transactions or one person with three, you know, is it three people each with one transaction or one person with three transactions? You can't find risk or opportunity and make good assessments if you can't see the difference between that. And the technique that we use uh, just to fast forward is called entity-centric learning. And what that means is as record one and two find each other because the names are similar and the address is, is close, so messy, maybe one of the records had an email and the other one had a phone number and now you've just learned both. So both records kind of have learned off of each other. And now with that richer view, you can find another yet another record and now you've learned a middle name. Then you learn a nickname, then you learn an AKA. You learn, so you're, you're assembling over time, like in a resume, uh, the different attributes. And you're using that union of those, that view to find more records that are the same, as well as help you realize when it's not the same. False positives can be pretty destructive. You're tapping on the wrong words of COVID. I just want to go a little deeper into that, right? I mean, you know, we're not also, none of this stuff is static. I mean, I do one thing and I'm on one channel, I do something else with another channel, I use different types of identity. Um, you know, we have bots that are creating all of these things now and going out and, and doing, you know, you go and look at some of the Facebook pages. Now I've learned to click through and actually look at the page and somebody sends you a request on something to see, is there a real person? Because my human mind is sensing this person is fake, right? But I don't know. But you have this fascinating thing that I've talked to you about, you know, when we met in Singapore about data finding data that you can't have human beings going and keeping on finding these patterns, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for me, that's a really fascinating algorithm at work. How does data find data? How do you actually do that? Yeah. You know where this notion came from is I was talking to a counterterrorism intelligence analyst at a, you know, a three-letter secret agency. And I, I asked him, I said, what do you wish you could have if you could have anything? And this is like right post 9-11. They said, I wish I could get answers to my questions faster. This sounds very reasonable. Like, man, who would want that? But, but it, I, it struck me really funny when she said that. I realized it was insane. It's insane to think that that's a goal. And here, I'll tell you why. She goes, I want to get questions to my answers faster. And I said, um, what happens if you ask a question today, but the piece of information you needed to make it an answerable question didn't exist quite yet. You haven't collected it yet. It hasn't arrived yet, but it arrives next week. And she looked at me and realized only the questions where the data had already happened, you know, or the data had arrived or connected. And I go, could that happen? And she goes, yeah, that could happen. And I said, what are the chances you can ask every smart question every day? And I'm not kidding you. I mean, she's a counterterrorism intelligence analyst. She looks at me and goes, she looks at me defeated. It just goes, I, I can't ask every smart question every day. And it really, that's the moment where it struck me in that windowless building. <laughs> um, <laughs> it struck me, I went, you, the future is where our systems, where the data finds the data and the things that are relevant find you. Then it doesn't matter what order the data arrives. It's about systems that help focus human attention. And it's such a higher order thing. And then systems waiting for humans to ask questions. And I've really been pursuing that. In fact, an entity resolution is call it a building block of a of a of more layers in a stack that are going to produce real sense-making systems. Systems that 
integrate diverse observations and figure out when it's relevant and, and if it's relevant and if so to who. And, and that's really my interest. But if you don't solve entity resolution, you can't do that well. So I'm building and, a and in and in the world you're coming in is an entity a person or an entity could be anything, a company, uh asteroid. Yeah. A business, a person, a car. <clears throat> I mean, yeah. When you go in there again, you have this, I mean, you know, and I, again, uh, this whole idea of how data finds data, you know, I was talking with the, the head of Expedia's marketplace in an earlier podcast. And I asked him, what do you think AI is going to be like? What do you think your travel AI is going to be like in two or three years time? He says, Suresh, it's really hard to say because I said, why? And his answer was 90% of the data that I've said the AI will be using in two to three years time isn't, doesn't exist today. Yes, a lot of it will be the same type, but there'll be lots of new types of data. So how do you design, you know, you talked about sense making, how do you design systems when you don't know the type of data that's going to exist? You don't know the type of problems, you know, it's yeah. a more generalized abstract thing. Yeah, uh, the answer to that is you you build a generalized context computing system. So my my last title at IBM was fellow, uh, one of 70, but also chief scientist of context computing. And the way that I like to describe this uh, in, in like layman's terms is um, imagine all the yellow puzzle pieces sitting over there and the blue puzzle pieces over there. And these ones are, you know, grass and green puzzle pieces over there. And your ability to take a pile of puzzle pieces or piles of puzzle pieces and, 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 and get an understanding is super limited because it's just piles of puzzle pieces. Like you almost have to study each observation in isolation, like grab a puzzle piece and go out, it's red. You're not quite sure if it's a fire or a picture of a fire, um, you know. But context computing and doing this in a generalized way is taking diverse observations, just like when you grab a puzzle piece out of the box. When you look at the puzzle piece, you're doing feature extraction. You're looking at like the colors on it, you're looking at the edges, and you're characterizing them. And then you look over all the other pieces that you've already assembled and stitched into your head, and now you're you don't take that puzzle piece and like check it on every every other piece of data you've ever had. You use the features you just extracted to prioritize some candidates. And then you take that puzzle piece and figure out which, you know, if, let's say it's red and green. So you look across the board. By the way, if there's tons of red and green, you go forget that. Now you see some yellow. Now there's only six pieces on the board that have some yellow. And then you take that piece to go put it there. And it's that process of integrating new observations with historical observations that you put into context assembled. It's like taking puzzle pieces to pictures is the way context accumulates. And the engine that, that we spent $50 million building is designed to do that in a generalized way. Right, right now, while it's doing people, companies, vessels, cars, planes, I've designed it to, you could, one of the stunt projects I've never done is I imagined a supercomputer building a three-dimensional 30 billion piece puzzle, non-solvable by mankind. You know, it's three-dimensional pieces with colors and shapes. And if you can characterize those colors, like three millimeters of yellow next to seven millimeters of red with this shape, you can feed it into this engine that I've built and it'll assemble the puzzle on the first pass without any training data, without knowing what the puzzle looks like beforehand. As if I hid the cover of the box from you. And it's about how you- How do you do it without it. training data? I mean, I understand how, you, I mean, the human mind's an amazing thing, right? We're able to spot that thing and Without us knowing it, we consciously say these are the attributes we put it out there. Uh, it's an abstraction machine beyond belief. I can understand when you say you build that, 
but how do you do it without training data how do you train yeah. this thing to all, yeah all my learning algorithms work in real time without training data and for the kinds of problems we solve it's impractical to reload and retrain like if you load billions and billions of records uh and then you have you know and let's say you're doing it in your 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 data sets represents this part of the world but then you know seven families from sudan move into town suddenly the statistics have changed in that town are you going to get wrong answers for a year until you retrain it's just not right and so uh the algorithms that that we've been building that do real time learning there there's something particular that they do is the moment a new piece of data arrives it recasts it it increments the statistics that are occurring and if the statistics as they are occurring in real time deviate from what you would expect it goes ah noted and then it does two things it goes well i'm not going to make that mistake again in the future but then it also says now that i know that had i known that in the beginning before i got billions of records would i have a different view of the world and then it fixes that in real time and that's expensive doing real time look back learning i'll i'll give you a really simple entity resolution example of that let's just say if you have a name and an id number you have a good match i'm just going to trivialize it okay but let's say the id number is 98765 mm. now the first time you see it good to go but what if you know 6 months later you have several john smiths and they all have the same you have you have, you have john smith sorry you have john smith and mark smith and susan and you've got like 20 people now that have the same id number 98765 that that id number is not a very good id number somebody's maybe just using it to get you know a required field in 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 real time learning in our style the moment it notices that's not a good identifier it goes backwards in time and reevaluates all the prior things that had that and, and fixes them and it does that at thousands of things a second on billions of records so you don't have to retrain every day and and just to just to uh uh book in this is i i learned how to explain this by an incredible story in wired magazine it said ai needs common sense because as you may have seen you can change a few pixels in some imagery and it takes the bus and tells you it's an ostrich and then there's a picture of a temple and you change a few pictures and the algorithm goes it's an ostrich again <laughs> and you and i would look at it and go what the hell's wrong with that algorithm how brutal is that and when you add common sense so the algorithms that i've been building or my team and i've been building have a layer of common sense so that it can work out of the box with no data and a statistic accumulate it's doing real time learning and they they interact with each other they're wrapped mm -hmm. and and that's what we're doing that's different and at we the algorithms that we are building are generalized so you could solve really interesting data integration problems beyond people and companies but we're doing people and companies now because it's at the center of everything yeah. but why wouldn't somebody like you know as you're talking and it's so fascinating right facebook says they have 2.7 billion users uh, i think we all know that many of them are not real why wouldn't you know what you're building why wouldn't be facebook or somebody out there be able to actually solve this and say i would only let in more or a very high probability that there's a real person in why is it so easy for all these large scale networks to allow so much fake identity flourish 
Well, two parts of that question. One part is the our purpose of sending is to make entity resolution easy for developers. Because right now, if people building software need entity resolution, they either home grow it and they don't realize how hard it is, and now they have 20 people working on it, or to buy the good stuff, it's a million dollars and it's only for the elite. And so sensing is just making entity resolution accessible to the, to the world. Small nonprofits that you know do for instance Chris's mailing list just download and use it for free. Um, so I see companies like Facebook that probably have 100 people, maybe 500 people working on entity resolution aren't going to need to do that anymore. Um, synthetic identities is something pretty particular. It is it, part of that solution, part of what's needed for that is entity resolution because you're trying to match a claim with other. You don't know it's synthetic unless you can't match it to something else. And you have these issues like, um, did the person just age up where now they can uh, represent themselves as a, as a credit person? Like, you know, they're, they're 12 years old, they're 13 years old, they're 14 years, now they're over 13 and now they're gonna have to start having a growing footprint. Maybe they were, they were born overseas and they've just immigrated and they don't have any data to, uh, uh, to compare themselves to. So you have to be very careful about when you say that's a real who or not. And, and then there's tradecraft that people use when they're creating synthetic identities. They'll use a name and date of birth that's legit from over there, but they use a social security number from over there. And so, again, it goes back to a tradecraft is when you get a piece of data, is it true or not? You have to have other data to compare it to. And a thing about synthetic data is you need to be able to go to a registry, if you will, to see if you've ever seen any of those features and are those features around an entity that looks like that. And if they're, if it's not, then it's at risk. It, it would improve the risk that it's a, uh, a synthetic identity, but it doesn't mean it is because they may have been overseas. They may have just aged up. Now, uh, to be clear is I used to build systems that had entity resolution in them. And then after entity resolution, which is who's who and who's related to, then you score it. Like, are you doing a marketing system? Are you doing a fraud system? Are you doing a terrorism system? But we don't do that scoring. Like, there's that never made us special. Like, is it good news or bad news? You want to sell them or call the army? Like, I don't know. That's that we've kicked that uh, out of our of our what we're doing just because the work we're doing in any resolution is so unique. And lots of people can build different algorithms on, you know, sorting things and scoring things and you know, you know, make sure no one sends me characters. So, Jeff, if you're building this thing and it can actually resolve it at this level of scale, do you actually see over the next few years or whatever it is, right? And forgetting about the business model of sensing and all that, just I'm just talking about the idea of entity resolution, what you built. Shouldn't there be a way in the planet for you to, you know, and this could be utopian or it could be dystopian, as you know, right? Should be able to say there are 7 billion people, each of them has this identity, and the identity is something that is so deeply embedded that it can be used to certify and therefore be authentic, but also can be used in a dystopian way to surveil, to track, to do all kinds of things that you don't want to. So is that brain actually happening? And I'm going to give you a real life example of something where people have argued about both the utopian and the dystopian element of identity, which is in India, you have this thing called the Aadhaar. You know, they have a universal ID. It's actually yeah. in the first photo ID, 1.3 billion people. It's a fantastic piece of technology really speaking, done in a low-cost, frugal way. It allows you access to all the systems and it's become the core of how you identify yourself. 
And there's also the concern about surveillance and will everything be tracked and, and you know, I'm not even going into the libertarian model. I'm just saying, where is this thing? So do you actually see these kind of brains becoming common in the next few years? I don't know about the next few years, but I think it's, it's definitely trending that way. The way, the way, you know, the way I balance privacy with the work that we do is we don't post entity resolution and don't get any data. We don't have the risk of having it be repurposed ever because no data flows to us. We help organizations combine the data they have rights to. A bank will have 300 piles of data, 300 different separated puzzle file pieces, okay? And, they're, and they, if they can get a better understanding of who's the same as who, they can address human trafficking better or money laundering better. So we help organizations make sense of what they already know. Now, the question is, are some organizations, you know, some organizations are more humanitarian and, uh, and say, ethical than others and other organizations we let people download our software for free. I have to worry about like the various organized crime groups actually downloading my software for free and using it. And I, I balance that out by thinking, you know, we it's like pencils, like pencils mainly get used for good. Now and then somebody uses the pencil and makes a hit list. <laughs> I, you know, I don't have a remedy for that because I'm not controlling how people use what we do. But the grand scheme of things is organizations of all sizes, private sector and public sector, are trying to better integrate the data they have. And, and governments have a sense of wanting to understand identity. And credit bureaus in the US want to understand identity. They want to understand every single transacting bill so they can deter, help, help their, their customers determine if somebody's credit worthy or not. And so there's these identity databases are building. Will there be a, a standard de facto single Maybe there's some reasons you'd hope for not. You'd hope it'd be a little more competitive, or there'd be some competing ones. And 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 that's really interesting because you know um, it's a bit like people say that guns don't kill people do, and um, you know it's really in the user. I was watching this fascinating thing about gene editing and CRISPR and Cas9, and the question is, you know, where do you draw that fine line? How do you do? Make sure there are no bad actors, if you will, using the same technology for things that they don't want to, right? Is a story in itself. But from the vision, I'd like to come back a little bit to closer home and, you know, our daily lives. Why, when we can resolve identity, why, when we can solve so many problems, is we've still not, as a industry, whether it's in financial services or whatever, whichever industry, solve the simple problem of, like, you know, so much high level of irrelevance in what is being kind of communicated around the world. And it's a, it's, it's a very common problem that every individual faces, right? I mean, your bank calls you six times, someone sending you mail. You're, why can't we solve that simple problem with so much intelligence? <laughs> Even Google now gives me more ads than it gives me search results at the top of the page, right? So is this, is this a technology issue? Is this an AI and an algorithm issue? Or is it just we don't want to apply ourselves to these problems. Well, I mean, speaking specifically to entity resolution, which is connecting data, it's been so hard for people to do. And they and they end up with so many they end up with so many duplicates in their system. And by the way, like you have an entity resolution problem that's personal in your phone, you have duplicates. Imagine that. You're the only curator, you're the one entering in 
contacts in your phone and you have duplicates in there because the first time you met him, you didn't know their last name and the second time you met him, you did. And you know, you have hundreds or a few thousand in there. Imagine organizations that have hundreds of people entering records about tens of millions of people. Imagine the problem they have. Anyway, it's just, it, it, it's just fundamental to so many basic problems. And the fact that the world hasn't really solved it in an easy way is no reason I picked it to be obsessed with. <laughs> and do you see yourself, Jeff? Uh, it's been fascinating, and I'm sure we could talk, and we have talked sometimes for, for long periods of time. Uh, but I just want to kind of uh, ask you, do you see, uh, when I, I'm going to go back to what we said at the start, you started off solving a whole bunch of problems. You kind of narrowed it down or narrowed it down, and you really want to focus on this one thing. Is this what you see yourself doing over the next few years? And and how long do you think this obsession or this compulsion to create this is going to go on? Well, we're I'm I'm committed to uh, commoditizing and democratizing entity resolution so it's accessible to the world. Everyone everywhere has access to a robust entity resolution that's affordable and easy to use. Period. Full stop. Uh, beyond that, there's other interesting problems, and one of the very interesting problems is um, entity extraction, taking unstructured data and pulling out of that unstructured data, names and addresses and phone numbers, uh, figuring out what is, you know, what, what data is hidden in unstructured data. That is such an imperfect piece of Absolutely. Technology. I mean, everybody struggles with that next. And I have really specific uh, ways, thank you, no, I'm good, thanks. Uh, a very specific ways to fix that. And That's I'm, interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm blown away that the world hasn't already fixed it. Like I, I'll chat with people that are running these entity extraction companies and I say, hey, you know, we're the beneficiaries downstream. Entity extractors pull structure out of unstructured data and then they hand us that structure. So I'm the beneficiary and they go, yay. And I go, and the victim. And they know exactly what I mean because the imprecision is that, is that poor. And uh, you, I know that, that I believe they're all I'm using all here on purpose is for all the companies that are in that business that I've talked to. And I go, hey, your accuracy needs to go up. Well, if I say to them, hey, you need to, if I double your, your total budget you've ever had, could you close your error rate in half? And when they say no, they can't close their error rate in half if I double their historical R&D budget, then they're on the wrong method. True. It's fundamental. And I, I, I know it's, I've been inspired by biology and the way the, uh, uh, the hippocampus and the neocortex interact with up and down pipes. And there's some clues in there that I think they're missing. Anyway, I'm going to get onto that next once I finish the liftoff of my starship. <laughs> Meaning, so you know, that's either... which we'll, we'll talk about that in the next edition. But um, Jeff, once again, fascinating talking to you. Um, and thank you for... Um, being on the show and thank you for demystifying uh, this whole idea of how entity resolution is. I mean, it's obviously a universal, ubiquitous problem in every enterprise. I love when you talk about my phone and the contact book. I mean, I'm wondering when you're going to launch something where I can just use it and, and deduplicate and solve this thing. You do it right I think now. that is a problem. You literally, you can literally just export your contact list to a CFB file, download my free product. It'll tell you all your dupes. I mean, it'll, you have to go fix them, but it'll tell you every single duplicate that you have. And you can do that in four minutes. Um, and uh, 
I'm going to go and do that because I just realized I have so many contacts out there that um, I don't know how they got there. <laughs> I, I didn't enter them. <laughs> I didn't enter them, but we all have that problem. But I think it talks to the universality of the problem that I think all of us face in our life. And um, thank you very much for demystifying that. And thank you very much for being on the show. And look Thanks, forward man. to speaking to you again. Yeah, we'll see you again. Adios. Thank you. Bye. We have new episodes coming out every week, sometimes twice a week. Each will seek to bring a different and fresh perspective to the topic. Please subscribe to the podcast channel and share it widely in your network. I look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Meanwhile, stay safe personally in the age of COVID and stay relevant professionally in the age of AI.